We're talking about coveting the uncontrollable sin. And as we've said, to covet is to delight in something. Depending on what we delight in, it will stipulate whether or not we transgress the Tenth Covenant. When it says covet, covet is really a neutral word. It is positive or negative depending on what we delight in. And the Bible says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, socks or his donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. When we want what other people have, that causes us to transgress the Tenth Commandment. We've looked at a couple of things as we've looked at coveting for a while, and we've come away with two observations that I want to remind us of. Number one is that coveting counts. Um, it's Jesus that made coveting count again. Here's what he said. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Jesus takes it from the realm of the action. And not only does the action count, but the thought and the feelings that precede the action count. Not just murder, but anger counts. And it's the same thing with adultery. He said, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. According to Jesus, and this must have been really hard to hear, that it's not just those who commit the act, be it murder or adultery, but those who are angry or lust, they stand in the same line as those who did the deed. So coveting counts, but what we find as well, we've got to be really careful about how we try to go after coveting because what we learned is that coveting is uncontrollable. If we try to address and restrict coveting in the wrong way, we end up actually increasing the problem rather than decreasing it. It's Paul who said, I would have not, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is death. And what it indicates here is that if we try to restrict coveting for the wrong reasons, we're actually going to make the problem worse. So here's the question. How do we deal with a problem that counts and a problem that's uncontrollable? We're going to look at five things. Um, Number one is be real. That's what we're going to talk about today. Be real. Then secondly, be still. Third, speak freely. Fourth, wait perseveringly. And fifth, respond gently. Let's look at the first one. Be real. If we're honest about our thoughts and feelings, according to the Bible, we're going to have to be honest about the fact that we have a resentful spirit. We'll talk about that. We've been talking about that. And not only a resentful spirit, but a rebellious heart. With respect to a resentful spirit, here's what James has to say. What causes fights and quarrels among you? And as we've been talking about, we've been looking at this verse. James is addressing 
church communities where the church communities are involved in fights and quarrels. And he wants to get to the root of the issue in these church contexts. So he asked the question, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And depending on who you would have asked in these congregations, they would have come up with very different answers. They, would, they might have talked about him or her or this thing that was happening in the government. But here's what James indicates when he gets to the root of it. Here's what he says. Don't they come from your desires, literally your pleasures, which battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. Then you kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want, and you quarrel and fight. So do you think the scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? As we looked in the past, we deal with warring pleasures and bitter envy. And this is what that means. Warring pleasures means that the things that we want don't all line up. We might be pleased with this, but we're also pleased with that. And the fact is that this and that are not the same thing. So if our pleasures are at war, and this is what we've tried to pin down, if our pleasures are at war and we live to be pleased, then we're going to live at war. We don't have the ability to pursue pleasure and to arrive at it because when we pursue pleasure, if in order to hit what we needed to hit, we'd have to go this way. And that's the problem. Um, that's why there's fights and quarrels. When our desires are frustrated, we not only are displeased. That's not the only problem. It says the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. What that means, longs to assign blame. When our desires are frustrated, we automatically react by blaming someone. I'm not saying that we think about it. It's just the way we react. It's just how kind of we're wired, hardwired, really. So we can either blame ourselves or blame someone else. And I think all of us might have a tendency in one way or another. If I was to come up to you and say, there's a problem, some of you kind of have a natural tendency to believe that the problem is elsewhere. So I said, well, we have a problem. You say, who did what? Others of us kind of usually end up pointing the blame inside. And so if we were to say, we have a problem, some of us would say, what did I do? <laughs> some of us point the finger outside. Some of us point the finger inside. And this ends up leading, we end up blaming somebody. That leads to quarrels and fights. Either we blame ourselves for our frustrated desires, our frustrated pleasures, or we blame somebody else. But we always react in some kind of blame, and the fact is, Apparently, what it says in this verse, we're kind of hardwired to do so. Um, the spirit he caused to live in us longs to assign blame. Uh, what does this mean practically? What it means is that our reaction to being frustrated will not be limited to what we don't have. We will look towards someone who made this happen. We'll blame somebody. We can blame ourselves or blame somebody else. It seems that this is 
universal and non-negotiable. So here's the question. Do we trust God enough to be real with him about what we feel and think inside? He already knows that we are frustrated and that we assign blame. Do we trust God enough to be real with him about the resentment that we deal with? We don't only deal with resentment, though. We deal with the rebellious heart. Look what Paul says. I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. God's commands triggered very different responses in Paul. At one level, God's commands elicited a, oh, yes. And at another place in Paul, it elicited a, oh, no. Oh, yes. Oh, no. And he found both of these reactions were inside himself. He didn't have the luxury of wholeheartedly wanting what God wanted or not wanting. He was split in two. That's what he suggests. The inner Paul delighted in God's commands, in his inner being. He delighted. But there's another law at work in the members, the members Paul. There's the inner Paul and the members Paul. Both of them are Paul. They have very different reaction to God's commands. At one level, there's resonance. And on the other hand, there's dissonance. And what it seems to suggest is this. That's kind of the way it is with us. If it was true for Paul, it's true for us as well. Not only do we deal with resentful spirits, but apparently rebellious hearts at some level in us. We will resonate with God's commands if we're honest. And if we identify it at another level, there's dissonance. We, we don't resonate with God's commands. What does this mean? If our pleasures point this way, if our desires point this way, you know what it means? In an absolute sense, you and I, cannot have what we want to have. It doesn't mean that we don't have anything we want to have, but we can't have everything we want to have. We can't do everything we want to do. We can't feel everything we want to feel. We can't think everything we want to think. We're going to be divided and split. That's going to create frustration. What that means, there's a church. I'm aware of the talked about the goal is wholehearted devotion to God. I'm going to suggest that wholehearted devotion to God as all of me is not very realistic. The fact is I'm going to want different things. I cannot be fully devoted to God, not on this side of eternity. A resentful spirit and a rebellious heart is hardwired into us. Here's the real question. 
do we trust God enough to be honest about the things we really think and feel? Do we trust him enough? Imagine an armed forces recruiter. Let's say I'm a recruiter. And you are the individuals who are seeking to get into the armed forces. Now, let's say I gave you an inoculation. I talked before about I'm done with my inoculation. I meant my quarantine. That ended up last night. Anyway, but let's say I inoculated you. Okay. And this inoculation creates nausea and diarrhea. Okay. I inoculate you. It creates nausea and diarrhea. Let's say I say to you, okay, how's everybody feeling today? And you say, fine and fit as a fiddle. Uh, there's a problem, isn't there? Because I know you have nausea and diarrhea. And the fact that you cannot admit that, why is that? Why can't you tell me what's true? And that's what we seem to have here. Um, there's, if you can't be true about your condition, that's that's might be a problem. You know, this is the problem when Jesus put his finger on what creates um, wounded, difficult spirituality. When he put his finger on the spiritual virus that creates real problems spiritually, he put his finger, well, this is what he said. Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. The Pharisees were separated ones. They did all the right things. They were very devoted. They devoted all of their time to doing the things that God told them to do, reading the Bible, praying, tithing, doing everything. And what Jesus identified is that they, more than anyone else in his time, were resistant to his spiritual influence. That's amazing. Jesus was very effective. He, he said the right things. He said them with the right spirit. He had no problem with most prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors. He couldn't crack a Pharisee. What is that? What is it? that causes somebody to be immune to the kind of divine influence that Jesus gives, and Jesus put his finger on it. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when I take what's real and I push it under the surface. There's a movie that says, uh, that kind of describes hypocrisy. When somebody says, there's two things I don't like about you, your face. <laughs> so being two-faced, it's, it's thinking this, but making you believe I think that. And when Jesus put his finger on what spiritual cancer was, that's what he put his finger on. I, I contracted COVID last week and I had to quarantine four or five days, and now when I'm out, I need to mask for five days because um, COVID is still a threat and because it's very contagious. And if I were, I imagine, to take 
this mask off and expose you, it's possible that you would get it. That's why I have a mask on. And from a spiritual perspective, that's what hypocrisy is like. It is a virulent spiritual disease, and it passes very quickly from one person to another. Um, the fact is, our senses are attuned to how things look. And we want to put our best foot forward, that's fine. The problem is, and this is the problem with the Pharisees, when how things look is all that matters, how things really are will never get dealt with. If the only thing we talk to God about is the outside things, and we don't really talk to him about the inside things, the true thoughts and feelings, we can fix the outside. But to fix the outside and to have the inside, well, that's kind of what hypocrisy is about. We all are in the process of learning to be real. Again, none of us is truly authentic. But it is job one. And when we think about what it takes to deal with coveting, step one, gradually learning to be real, especially in our communications with God. To tell him what we truly think and feel, trusting him enough that he knows it's already there, and he wants us to express it to him rather than to hide it. And that is the truth. Um, why was Paul able to admit the things that he was able to admit? I imagine that at his time, what Paul wrote when he says, I resonate with God's commands and I don't, I imagine that that was a shocking thing for people to hear at the time. And it's amazing to me that Paul had the ability and honesty to say that out loud. And you know the reason why he was able to say that? It's because of what he experienced. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the fact is, Paul believed that. He believed that those things he thought and felt, even when they weren't right, God would not condemn. And that is what the gospel tells us. There is no condemnation. And what that means for us, when we turn our face towards God and reveal to him the things that we're struggling with, there will not be condemnation from him. If we withhold that, now all of us are on the path. What he'll want to do is work in our life little by little to elicit from us the trust that will allow us to be real. That is spiritual goal number one. It's the thing that Jesus was trying to inculcate. We have a hard time believing that God is as non-condemning as he says he is. And that kind of creates an issue. Look at this. This is a very, the last passage to look at, a very familiar passage. We're going to look at it just a little bit. Here's what it says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son 
into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So that's a statement. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. I just want you to just keep that, keep that in the back of your mind, because that's, we're going to, we're going to pick that back up when we look at the second paragraph in this passage. Anyways, it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. To believe in God and to know, to believe in the truth about God means that you believe you're not condemned because that's what God communicates. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. And if you believe in God, you believe that there's no condemnation. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe, does not believe, stands condemned already because he hasn't believed in the name of God's one and only son. Then it goes on. Here's what it says. This is the verdict. The verdict is the judgment. It's what God hands down. This is the decree that comes from him. Look what it says. This is the verdict. So God pronounces judgment. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of they loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Now, here's the question. This is God, what it's describing is the judgment. There is someone who is in the dark, they've done evil things, and they won't come toward the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So they withhold and withdraw from God. They can't be real with him. Here's my question. I want you to imagine this person who's aware of things they've done wrong, and they are in the darkness, and they will not come into the light. What is this person's problem? Do they have a behavior problem, or do they have a belief problem? Which one is it? Which one is it? Ah, this person has done some things that were wrong. Things that caused them not to want to draw towards God. Probably a belief problem. I mean, a behavior problem. I see, oh, I see some, no, I don't think it's a behavior problem. I think it's a belief problem. The fact is, is the light condemning? The answer is, the light is not condemning. So the problem is not that this person has done things wrong. We've all done things wrong. The problem is he thinks the light is condemning. Why does he think the light is condemning? Because he hasn't believed in the name of God's one and only son, because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. So you make sense? Most people coming away from this passage say, well, the guy's problem is he did something wrong. Stop doing wrong things. And then you'll be able to come into God's presence. Good luck with that. Because God's not going to judge your actions. He's going to judge your thoughts. You can't control your thoughts. If you try to control coveting, you're going to do more. And guess what? Coveting counts. And coveting is uncontrollable. So if you're going to try to clean up your life enough to waltz into God's presence, 
pristine and pure, you have to clean up not just your actions, but your beliefs. And that's a really difficult thing. Would you agree with me? It's better to believe the truth about this. God is not condemning you. God is not condemning you. He knows what you think and feel. He's not condemning you. He's not condemning you. You know what he wants? Come to the throne of grace and speak freely. Be real. It's tiring to lie to him. Again, all of us, it, it's hard to learn. I'm, and I'm not just saying that. It's very difficult to learn because, frankly, most people can't be trusted with the truth. Some people, they, they, it will crush them if they knew the truth. Their shoulders aren't big enough. They can't take the pressure of the truth. Some people's heart is too small. They don't care enough. Let me tell you something about God. God's heart is really big. You cannot overwhelm his love for you. Not only is his heart big, his shoulders are really wide. You're not going to crush him by what you admit. Spiritual goal number one with respect to striking at the root of coveting. Don't pretend with him. Learn gradually, little by little, to be a little more honest and upfront with God. What you'll find, that's step one on the road to striking at the root of covenant. Next week, we'll look at the second, which is be real. The next one is be still. And we'll talk about that. Let's stand for closing prayer. Father, thank you for telling us directly that you don't condemn us. And this is what you want us to believe. To the degree we learn to believe it, we're able to move into your presence authentically and real. We don't have to hide the things that we are afraid to admit because you're not going to condemn. What you want us to learn is to trust you enough to tell you the truth about what we think and feel and to ask for your help. That's what you want. You want a real relationship. A real relationship, not with the me that I would like to be, but the me that I actually am. You see that. and You want a relationship with us. Thanks for that. Thanks for not coming into the world to condemn the world. And I pray you'd help us to believe it and to gradually, slowly, bit by bit, be able to approach you more authentically and really. In Jesus' name, amen.